you are listening to right here, right now. I'm Ellie. I'm Lucy. And I'm Eleanor. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the show where we read your unpublished writings aloud uh, for broadcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. Tonight we do have some fantastic submissions, as well as some of our favourites, some uh, poems you might know, some short stories you might know or have read, um, dotted amongst our fantastic submissions. Before we do dive into it, however, there is something important we need to let you know. Yes, before we get started, we'd just like to acknowledge and pay respect to the owners of the land, the House of Sin and the studio Stand On, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Thank you, Lucy. And a quick note that the creative works we are reading tonight do contain some adult themes and some swearing. So they might not be for everyone. If you've got young ears nearby, then this might not be the station to be tuned into for the next hour. But for the rest of you, please stay with us. What do we have first, Ellie? The first poem we have tonight is a submission uh, by William Kane. You might remember the name William Kane from last week. He submitted his poem, uh, Leon, last week, and it was absolutely fantastic. So... We have uh, another submission from William Kane. Thank you so much for submitting again. Away we go. This one is called Verde. In Antiguan courtyards, something had changed. My eyes, brown, maron, were now green. Verde. Mama Rosa confessed it to me, but I didn't listen. Like a frog boiling to death... I didn't notice the crawl my windows had made to a foreign colour, a foreign narrative. It's not the lie. <laughs> a foreign identity. Narrative. Now, I can't remember a time I wasn't green. Verde. Unless I stare at a cherished family photos of holidays, birthdays, Christmas. All celebrations. Where are the photos of when mum broke down or dad wasn't there? Not often, but still unforgettable. Wide, innocent, inquiring brown eyes. Off to school. Another year. Those eyes are gone now, and so is that aspect of myself. Left behind in a past that may never have existed exactly like that the way we are told, or how we remember. What colour eyes were Mama Rose's? Did it matter? The part I have lost left a gap that is now something else. That is the colour green. A submission there by William Kane. William uh, submitted a poem last week, and if you too would like to have your submissions read aloud, please Send us an email at writehereradio at gmail.com. That's W-R-I-T-E, radio at gmail.com. That was such a nice piece. Thank you, William, for submitting twice to us now. Mm. We love it when submitters come back a second time around. The, um, the story behind that, he told me when he, he submitted it, and he was travelling and uh, a woman was teaching him Spanish and he was being taught the colours and she said to him well your eyes are green like your eyes are verde and he said no no my eyes are marron um, brown and she said no 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 and insisted and then when he looked in the mirror he realised as he had grown and changed his eyes had too changed mm. so we like to hear the stories behind your submissions um if you do submit to us, please feel free to give as much or as little uh, detail as possible. We, we do love to hear your stories. Yeah, definitely. If you want to submit to us, don't forget you can send us an email um, at writehereradio at gmail.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. Now, next up, we have another submission by Sarah Abizanmi. She is a writer from London, and last week we heard her poem, June. So just like William, she's come back a second time to right here, right now. 
This is her peace, prodigal son. Return home, my boy. I am growing impatient. I teach you to be tough and to endure, all because I know that it will help you in the end. Be strong, my boy. You can make it. I know you think you hate me, but just wait until tomorrow and you will really hate me. Wait until the next day and you will really, really hate me. You won't stop hating me until you realise what I am doing for you. You do not realise how much I love you and how you should listen to me. You should listen to me over any other voice. You should drown out any sound of doubt and listen to my voice. You should strain yourself to really hear me. You should submit to me. You should know that I only have your best at heart. You should listen to me when the world wants to tear you apart and you are torn because it seems like I am on the aggressing team. But you should really listen. You must understand that I only crack the whip to teach you that your back is thick. I put you under pressure. I test your limits so that you realise that you should have none. You get so angry and tired and you're mad and you think that you are weak. You think there is no way you can beat it, but then you get to the end. You can beat me. You can beat it, Jack, son. You can win against me. You can pass the test and you will go on hating me until you can attest to your success through me. All because you listened to me. All because you heard me and tuned out the white noise. Don't ever forget that it is because of you too, son. Don't ever write yourself out of your success story, son. Don't ever forget that before I told you that you were a strong boy, you already were one. When you grow bored of the pain and disregard the gains and you wander away, just know that I will be there to remind you once again. I will embrace you with the whip and you will learn once again to listen and your ears, for me, will strain. That was Prodigal Son by Sarah Ebisanmi, who also submitted to us last week. Thank you, Sarah. I really liked that. Yeah. Mm. And uh, her piece uh, last week, it was a poem, and I'm just bringing up the title now because it escaped me. Um, June? June. 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 That's right. She's uh, she's from London. She's a writer. Absolutely phenomenal. Mm. If you too would like to submit, uh, you can send us an email at writehereradio at gmail.com. Yeah, so this next one we have, um, this isn't a submission, this is just one that, a short story that we really liked. Um, it's actually published in the big issue um, back in August 2017, so last year, and it's a fiction special of the big issue. So um, hopefully there'll be another one coming out soon for this year. And this piece is called Making Room by Alexandra Statmans. Um, she was a student of RMIT's associate degree in professional writing and editing and this is actually her first published fiction piece so Mm. let's hear it get settled it goes for a couple of minutes the dirt road wound around the hills clinging bravely to the cliffside across the bridge it dropped down sharply and as it turned a gully fell away to its left shallow at first then deeper wider a trench in the earth the gums strode out of it tall ferns too Sun barely filtered through their dusty leaves. The soil far below was always damp, buried in the shredded bark, rich while the trees remained dry and limp. The trickle of a creek was buried too, until the next storm would surge through, washing everything away. Bugs burrowed in the bracken and moss at the bottom of the gully, appreciating the blanket of foliage. Larger animals hunkered down in its bunk, opposite the roadside, digging around strong roots for stability. The road was not well worn, and the rumble of tyres was long drowned out by the burbling of magpies once the dust had settled. The road twisted again, the shade of the gums thinning, the ferns dropping out of view, the canopy broadened, and wide patches of sunlight stuck to the gravel. To the right, wilderness briefly gave way to grass, trees making their last assault at the fence line, bark and leaves toppling over, but the occasional branch dragged away for firewood. Blackberry thorns stretched the length of the boundary. Here, a barely visible metal gate hung eternally open between two straining fence posts, almost swallowed by the bushland, invisible among the greys and browns. An empty gas bottle, crudely drilled to a rotting post, served as a marker. Five. 
it was up to the visitor to have predetermined the street name. They would have turned then, four tyres hugging the two tracks already made out for them, allowing strokes of grass to peek through in between. It was a driveway not often used, aside from Bill Wagner himself. When the boy was born, Wagner stood shaky in the hall of the hospital. It had been an urgent hour's drive. The girl was with the neighbours across the way, but the cows would, know, would need to be brought in soon. They would need hay and bedding down. They were expecting in a few weeks too. This is what Wagner was thinking about, watching the shadows in the hall grow longer as the sun at the far end of the lino and out behind the siding glass doors dipped behind the hills he had come from. He was not thinking about Mary having her belly sliced open. He was not thinking about how he had been handballed between rushing nurses to be placed on a hard plastic chair that was nailed to the wall. He was not thinking about the uncomfortable white chair, or why it and its partners were so scuffed, nor why it would need to be bolted down in the first place. What kind of sad sack would steal a hospital chair? He was also not thinking about the little, very little boy who was yet to find a name. New parent? A pamphlet cheerfully inquired from across the rubber-streaked lino. No, he thought, no. The girl would have be having tea by now with Garth and Rosie. The dog would lie on her feet under the sturdy oak table. She would pester him about getting a dog when he got back. You'll have a brother, was Mary's reply last time the girl brought it up. Wagner sighed. If she were here, the girl would crawl her soft fingers into his calloused ones, hers like pillows he could barely feel. She would wriggle her body across one or two of the plastic seats and nuzzle her head into his lap and she would stay there while he would not breathe lest his breath blow her away. Down the starched hall, past beeping machines from buried rooms and sinks full of antibacterial soaps, out the doors and up into the hills, scattering like dust on the backs of his freezings. But then slowly, ever so slowly, he would lower his hand to her wisp of golden hair and tuck it behind her ears. He would stroke it softly at the base of her neck, watch her eyelids flutter in almost sleep, see her fingers curl under her chin and her mouth fall into a little smile. He would watch her breathe, little chest rising and falling against his dirty jeans, little hands still lost in his. And he would watch her forever before he breathed again, before he thought again. Of the dam that needed digging, the fence post that needed replacing, and of the rolls of wire that needed collecting, he would just watch her breathe and everything else would fall away. But the girl wasn't with him. You don't need her getting in the way, Rosie had said. His sandpaper fingers clenched and unclenched with nothing to hold them. They ran up through his hair and down across his chin, prickles the girl would have complained about. They gripped the hard white armrest too, and then released. He stood again briskly at the, at the appearance of a nurse, and then paced a while, releasing dust everywhere. Then he collapsed into the torture of the chair again, rinse and repeat. And thinking about the girl eating too many Tim Tams, lying across his cattle-scented legs, wheedling, his, wheedling her way into his flannel-crossed arms, never minding the dirt caked into the lines of his skin. Thinking about the girl, he wondered where it came from, this love, this fear. Did he have enough? Was there more for the boy? Was there a boy? He shook his head, stood up and paced. There was, it turns out, a boy. And there was Mary too, and Wagner's hands stopped clenching when he saw them together, two red faces swathed in mountains of scratchy white cotton. Both sweaty, both quiet, but both breathing. He stood awkwardly, presiding over the foot of the bed as his wife beamed at the boy, their boy. The last of the afternoon sun kissed their heads, let most of, motes of dust dance in the light. Wagner could breathe, but he was breathless. The nurse, pale blue scrubs rustling, bustled around the frozen three. She bent over the baby, scooped him up, counted his toes, weighed him, wrapped bands around his wrists, poked things into his ears, unwrapped and rewrapped him. The parents stayed still, watching only their eyes, their movement. When the nurse was finished, she placed the boy in Wagner's unsuspecting arms, rearranging him to support the head, though he had already moved with instinct. She flipped out the last of the sunlight with a snap of the blinds, bringing them back to life as the dust motes dropped. Pushing energy into the room now as the boy wriggled, his mother shifted her bulk in the sheets and his father hefted his weight from one foot to the other. Wagner didn't know what to think about the wriggly ball of life in his arms, eyes squinted closed. He thought of dropping him, not on purpose but in fear, 
He thought of his brave wife. He thought of the other blokes in Marysville playing footy with their sons. He thought of cows' hooves and how deadly they were. But as he pulled back the rough cotton from the little boy's face and fingers, his only thought was perfect. The wrinkles, the squinty eyes, the cherry cheeks, the dollop nose, the tiny delicate lattice of black hair, the miniature fingernails, all ten. Perfect. There was room. That and was really nice. That was Making Room by Alexandra Statmans. That was so beautiful. Wow. And I guess reading something from the big issue, while it's not um, a submission, it's just something we really liked, um, it's a reminder that, you know, if you do want to get your work out there, there's lots of different places to submit. You can submit to us. We would love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the big issue, which we absolutely support. Yeah. I really liked about that, that it was very Australian feeling. Yeah. You know, without being yeah too even avert about it yeah the description of the the valley and the trees and ferns and stuff i i've driven a route through marysville and it, that's what it looks like yeah what what she describes it's really beautiful yeah mm. that's so nice well our next piece is again not a submission but it's a piece that we really like that button poetry uh posted on youtube in 2015 it's called when love arrives by Sarah Kay and Phil Kay and Button Poetry is a great platform for um, slam poetry that's been produced and content from very diverse uh, authors and presenters so we hope you like this piece it is When Love Arrives by Sarah Kay and Phil Kay I knew exactly what love looked like in 7th grade Even though I hadn't met love yet, if love had wandered into my homeroom, I would have recognized him at first glance. Love wore a hemp necklace. I would have recognized her at first glance. Love wore a tight French braid. Love played acoustic guitar and knew all my favorite Beatles songs. Love wasn't afraid to ride the bus with me. And And I I knew knew I just must be checking the wrong classrooms. Just must be searching the wrong hallways. She was there. I was sure of it. If only I could find him. But But when when love finally showed up, she had a bowl cut. He wore the same clothes every day for a week. Love hated the bus. Love didn't know anything about the Beatles. Instead, Instead, every time I tried to kiss love, our teeth teeth got in the way. Love became the reason I lied to my parents. I'm going to... Ben's house. Love had terrible rhythm on the dance floor, but made sure we never missed a slow song. Love waited by the phone because she knew if her father picked up, it would be... Hello. (sighs) Hello. Oh, my God. I guess they hung up. And love grew. Love stretched like a trampoline. Love changed. Love disappeared slowly like baby teeth. Losing parts of me I thought I needed. Love vanished like an amateur magician. Everyone could see the trap door but me. Like a flat tire. There were other places I had planned on going. But but my my plans plans didn't didn't matter. matter. Love stayed away for years. And when love finally reappeared, I I barely barely recognized her. Love smelled different now. Had darker eyes. A broader back. Love came with freckles I didn't recognize. New birthmarks, a softer voice. Now there were new sleeping patterns. New favorite books. Love had songs that reminded him of someone else. Songs love didn't like to listen to. So So did did I. I. But we found a park bench that fit us perfectly. We found jokes that make us laugh. And now love makes me fresh homemade chocolate chip cookies. But love will probably finish most of them for a midnight snack. Love looks great in lingerie, but still likes to wear her retainer. Love is a terrible driver, but a great navigator. Love knows where she's going. It just might take her two hours longer than she planned. Love is messier now. Not as simple. Love uses the word boobs in front of my parents. Love chews too loudly. Love leaves the cap off the toothpaste. Love uses smiley faces in her text messages. And turns out, love love shits. (laughs) But love also cries. And love will tell you you are beautiful. And mean it. Over and over again. You are beautiful. When you just wake up. You are beautiful. When you've just been crying. You are beautiful. When you don't want to hear it. You are beautiful. When you don't believe it. You are beautiful. When nobody else will tell you. You are beautiful. Love still thinks. 
You are beautiful. But love is not perfect and will sometimes forget. When you need to hear it most, you, you are, are beautiful. beautiful. Do not forget this. Love is not who you were expecting. Love is not what you can predict. Maybe love is in New York City already asleep. You are in California, India, Australia, wide awake. Maybe love is always in the wrong time zone. Maybe love is not ready for you. Maybe you are not ready for love. Maybe love just isn't the marrying type. Maybe the next time you see love is 20 years after the divorce. Love looks older now, but just as beautiful as you remember. Maybe love is only there for one month. Maybe love is there for every firework, every birthday party, every hospital visit. Maybe love stays. Maybe love can't. Maybe, Maybe love, love shouldn't. shouldn't. Love arrives exactly when love is supposed to. And love leaves exactly when love must. When love arrives, say, welcome. welcome. Make, Make yourself, yourself comfortable. comfortable. If love leaves, ask her to leave the door open behind her. Turn off the music. Listen to the quiet. Whisper. Thank, Thank you for stopping, stopping by. was When Love Arrives by Sarah Kay and Phil Kay, posted on YouTube in 2015 by Button Poetry. How sweet. Yeah. It was so nice. It was very cute, wasn't it? Yeah. It's nice to hear love poems uh, when they're serious, but it's also nice to hear love poems that are a bit cheeky, yeah. Yeah. are a bit funny. Um, Definitely. I wonder, do we know uh, they... Did they were they just performing it together, or is that something they wrote together? Are they? I'm not sure, to be honest. Mm. Um, I hope they were together. Me I hope too. They were a couple. <laughs> <laughs> that would just be too sweet, yeah, wouldn't it? Um, we had a uh, fabulous, uh, another fabulous spoken word piece uh, on the show last week by Ravina Grover, a Sydney-based poet. Um, Last week's episode uh, will be up uh, to podcast shortly, so uh, you can go check out that soon. Uh, but now we are on to another one of our favourites, um, a published poem uh, by distinguished author Jig Ryan. Um, this poem is called If I Had a Gun. I'd shoot the man who pulled up slowly in his hot car this morning. I'd shoot the man who whistled from his balcony. I'd shoot the man with things dangling over his creepy chest in the park where I was contemplating the universe. I'd shoot the man who can't look me in the eye, who stares at my boobs when we're talking, who rips me off in the milk bar and smiles his wet purple smile, who comments on my clothes. I'm not a fucking painting that needs to be told what it looks like. Who tells me where to put my hands, who wrenches me into position like a mechano set, who drags you round like a war. I'd shoot the man who couldn't live without me. I'd shoot the man who thinks it's his turn to be pretty, flashing his skin passively like something I've got to step into. The man who says... John's a chemistry PhD and an ace cricketer. Jane's got rotten legs. Who thinks I'm wearing perfume for him? Who says, baby, you can really drive like it's so complicated. Male, his fucking highway. Who says, ah, but you're like that. And pats you on the head. Who kisses you at the party because everybody does it. Who shoves it up like a nail. I'd shoot the man who can't look after himself, who comes to me for wisdom, who's witty with his mates about heavy things that wouldn't interest you, who keeps a little time to be human and tells me, female, his ridiculous private thoughts, who sits up in his moderate bed and says, was that good? Like a menu, who hangs on to you sloppy and thick as a carpet, I'd shoot the man last night who said, smile honey, don't look so glum, with money swearing from his jacket, and a three-course meal he prods lazily, who tells me his problems, his girlfriend, his mother, his wife, 
his daughter, his sister, his lover. Because women will listen to that sort of rubbish. Women are full of compassion and have soft, soggy hearts you can throw up in and no one will notice, and they won't complain. I'd shoot the man who thinks he can look like an excavation site, but you can't. Who thinks what you look like's for him. To appraise, to sit back, to talk his intelligent way. I've got eyes in my fucking head. Who thinks if he's smart, he'll get in it? I'd shoot the man who said, Andrew's dedicated and works hard. Julia's ruthlessly ambitious. Who says, I'll introduce you to the ones who know. With their inert, alcoholic eyes. That'll get by. Sad, savage and civilised. Who say, you can, like there's a law against it. I'd shoot the man who goes stupid. In his puny, abstract, how could I refuse she needed me? Taking her tatty head in his neutral arms like a pope. I'd shoot the man who pulled up at the lights, who rolled his face articulate as an asylum, and revved up the engine, who says, you're paranoid, with his educated, born-to-it calm, who's standing there, wasted as a rifle, and explains the world to me. I'd shoot the man who says, Relax, honey. Come and kiss my, ma- my Valium mouth blue. An extremely powerful poem, uh, If I Had a Gun, by Jig Ryan there, one of our favourites. That was a great rendition too, Ellie. I really liked the way mm. you read that. I tried uh, to deliver that with as much power as I can because I think after reading that poem, it's hard uh, as, as, we, I mean, as a woman uh, not to feel powerful, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. Sometimes words can leave you feeling empowered. Um, yeah. There's all really too nice. much in that poem that is just too familiar, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, now we are going uh, to move on uh, to an interview we had with uh, one of our submitters, an author uh, called Harrison Bishop. He submitted uh, a fabulous poem last week called 38 Cans of Beer and a Kiss in the Sun. Um, This week we'll be uh, listening to Harry's the first part of Harry's short story, Pernod in Winter. I caught up with him early this week to have a chat about that. So let's have a listen to Harry now. Harry, thank you so much for joining us and talking with me about your story, Pernod in Winter. Just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about what the story is about, if you were to summarise it for somebody who hasn't read it before. Sure. So, the lead character is Eugene, and he's travelling through France. Um, the story takes place in Paris, uh, and it follows his journey. Um, I guess it really focuses on a tribulation that we seem to put ourselves through, where we decide to go overseas with limited funds and no plans and think that everything's going to work itself out and be perfect and we come back with these wonderful memories and tell all our friends that we had such a wonderful time when in reality what we experience is just short-term impoverishment in a city where no one can understand us. Beautifully put. Is this story inspired by your experiences, true experiences? I guess there's some truth in all fiction, but to say it's based on true experiences would be false. So, what inspired you to write this story? Uh, It's probably a story a lot of young writers have. Um, I fell in love with Jack Kerouac when I was 16, 17. And obviously, being a bit older now, I, I see a lot of flaws in his writing, but at the time, I was just completely over, taken over by stories of basically hitting the road and 
having what I perceived through his writing as a wonderful time, getting away from the mundane routine of daily life and going on these amazing adventures and being able to write about them in such a way that mixed poetry and prose uh, in ways that I don't think any other writer has really been able to do since Kerouac. So yeah, I was really inspired by not only On the Road, but Lonesome Traveller um, and Dharma Bums. It's funny you mentioned Kerouac because when I first read this story, that was the first thing I, I thought. I thought it's so uh, Kerouacian in, in the way it's written. Um, and that inspiration, I think, really comes. So on that vein of um, this kind of stories that inspired you, what do you most like to write about? Um, yeah, I guess for me going overseas and writing about adventures overseas was a big thing that I wanted to do, but I guess just writing about life, (laughs) you can't choose when the creative bug hits you and you need to write. So yeah, you're inspired by all sorts of things. You can't just nail it, um, down on one specific event or, or or your environment is comes whenever. You talk about the creative bug hitting you. Um, is that sort of something that you, yeah, wait to happen, or do you have kind of a, a set process that allows you to write the the words that you do? Uh, no, so completely spontaneous. The best piece of advice I was given was the first draft of your work is always just for you, and you can just write as it comes to you, it doesn't have to be perfect, Um, it doesn't have to be grammatically correct, you can get your semantics all mixed up, it doesn't really matter, and then through the drafting process you can get it fixed up and and looking better. Yeah, the the freedom to make mistakes, I think, is uh, kind of in that vein of, you know, the first draft is for you and it's, yeah, some of the best advice I've been given. There is one final question I had for you. For you, uh, as a creative person, why writing as a medium to express your creativity? Uh, it's just what I fell in love with. <laughs> yeah, as simple as that. I've always read since I was really small, and I've always been a really avid reader, so I guess it's just the one thing that's been present, um, and I couldn't imagine my life without reading, so I think writing is just an extension of that. Two things that often go hand in hand, reading and writing, readers and writers. Harry, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was an interview with um, Harrison Bishop. He is the author of um, a short story submitted to us. It's called Pernod in Winter and we're just going to listen to part one now. Where are you, Eugene? I'm in Paris, Ma. Weren't you coming back to your mama? Just can't, Ma just can't. Paris has me by the balls and she's not letting go. Ma? Ma, I just don't know what to do no more. You coming back to your mama straight away, young man. Do you hear me now? I hang up, the phone bouncing off the tiled floor, my face pale and eyes watery, my nose spoiled red in the cold. I'm in Montmartre drinking cold Parisian beer in a karaoke bar. A dive attached to a flea-infested hostel. Bugs crawling on the walls. Two women from Saskatchewan sit down and talk. It's their first night in Paris and they're leaving in two days' time. Not enough time to be in Paris, I tell them. They smile back at me and explain diplomatic plans and schedules and train tickets already booked. So where are you heading tonight? I ask, the night's still early. We'll probably just stay and drink here. The girl with the glasses and a straight fringe tells me. I sigh and scrunch my face up. There's more out there, has to be. It's goddamn Paris. A kid from California sits down at our table, puts his phone down and swigs his beer. I like him instantly because he put his phone down, his hands free. I know a restaurant near here. Do you want to join me? I ask the girls from Saskatchewan. They refuse and my cheeks blow out in exasperation. I turn to the Californian kid and ask him if he wants to join me for dinner, go out and find something French and all that. He grins and rubs his hair. Absolutely, man. Let's get out of here. My kind of kid. We get to the restaurant and get shown a table. 
fled upstairs and dumped on the end of a large square table with two women next to us. They both stare at us in our English tongues. We all swig red wine that stains our teeth and laugh in big boisterous heaves. Somewhere deep down, thoughts of romance and fucking in the Parisian dawn take over our senses. Yet the women aren't there for any of that. Both here for the Vang Rouge. The women next to us finish and their seats are taken by an elderly couple who just sit and look deep into each other's eyes. It means something more than we can understand. Me and the kid are turned over, well drunk, laughing and pinching the waiter who loves his job. We pay our money and laugh our way out the door. Arm in arm, we stagger down the cold streets and puff on cigarettes to keep us warm, to make us Parisian and all that. Too cold to continue, so we stumble into bars and closed boulangeries all over town, just trying to stay warm. Six stops before we reach the godforsaken karaoke. The screams of a well-done Swedish man named Hauser, rupturing eardrums, turning Metallica into folk and folk into Swedish. It's just the turns of time, I suppose. The girls from Saskatchewan are still there, still sitting, sipping scotch in their fur-lined coats, feet tapping on the crooked boards. I tell them they missed out, missed out on love, romance, what Paris is all about with two complete strangers. The greatest of times right there in front of them, but they preferred being close to home, no matter how temporary that is. The kid walks to the bar and orders beer, three bottles for himself, but I don't mind. The girl with glasses and that straight fringe keeps looking at me and I just know all that talk about romance in Paris has got her, got her hooked on the tentacles of life and all. The night gets late and we fall around. I wake up sometimes during the night in the darkness smelling like Norwegian salmon farms and the fishermen who live off the rolling seas. All bristle and women, beer stained throats and fish. I get up out of bed and leave the girl wrapped in two blankets, her hair sprawling across the bed like the kraken. I pull on some jeans and a sweater and stumble back into the bar. It's empty now, just the Californian kid asleep in his hat and a bartender wiping down benches. I sip a beer and groan. It's always just out of reach. It gets later and I'm still drinking. Too many cheap Parisian beers rolling around in my stomach, my head light in the artificial heat. The bartender shifts a rack of glasses and tells me in a strange Yorkshire grunt to go to bed and take the damn kid with me. I carry the kid up to the dorm and drop him on a free bed before a phone goes off and my foot ends up through a hostel window. Smashed up, broken and lonesome. I'm all wound up and angry at Turkish women grunting and snoring throughout the night, but that's not it. You wouldn't believe me if I told you, but I think I'm mad. The next morning I'm kicked out and told not to come back. The hostel manager wagging his finger at me like a Berlin guard. I trudge away with my bag slung over my shoulder, my head down. Cigarettes burning low, my cheeks frozen in the wind. I continue walking and stumble across a graveyard. I enter looking for peace of mind and a bench to sleep on, but it's eerie and dead people seem to be buried everywhere. The sun is up, yet it shouldn't have wasted its time. Tombstones, black crows and a lunatic running through the shadows laughing to himself in Jim Morrison's grave. Women and boys clambering over the dead to take photographs on Jim's dead body. I heave and run behind a tree, spraying my insides down the side of burnt oak. How the hell did I end up here? I leave, heart heavy, heading south, past churning laundromats and men in thick black coats, bakeries and small-time vegetable stools, a pub and a room to stay, more a bed and a dorm on the third floor, bunk beds, lockers and clean sheets. That was part one of Harrison Bishop's Winter in Pernod. We will be playing the rest of that recording over the next two weeks and you can follow Harrison and his work on Instagram at harrisobish, H-A-R-R-I-S-O-B-I-S-H. And if you want to submit to our show, please hit us up at righthereradio at gmail.com. That's right, W-R-I-T-E. So thank you for that, Harrison. And... Now what do we have next, Lucy? Uh, now we're going to move to a poem. Um, this poem's called Anxiety and Me. It's by Anita. She's, um, she's a poet from London. And yeah, we're going to have a, have a listen to this one. At times I question my feelings inside. Is this normal or am I losing my mind? Sad and scared, many emotions, but none consistent. Body in commotion. Heart races and races, my head spinning. Obvious my thoughts are not winning. Hands shaking, 
needing to steady my breath. In no doubt, I'm scared to death. Things go blurry as I reach my phone, wanting to scream, feeling so alone. Everything's now in slow motion, needing to focus to think of the ocean. Before I realise I'm back, reach my door. Life with anxiety is a challenge for sure. That was Anxiety and Me by Anita. Um, I think that's a really powerful poem again. Something, it's nice to hear something about mental illness. Really important thing to talk about. Absolutely. And I think um, writing is such an outlet for so many people for um, that has an impact on their mental illness. Mm. Um, I know for me, sometimes I feel so much better after just putting it all on paper, you know. Mm. Um, so an absolutely fantastic submission from Anita there. And thank you so much, Anita. And to all of our submitters tonight. Yeah, thank you, Anita. And thank you, Lucy, for reading. Next up, I'm going to read an excerpt from Speak No Evil, which is a novel by Uzudima Uewa. And he was the author of Beasts of No Nation, which was turned into a film a few years ago, but his latest release, Speak No Evil, is the story of a young gay man, Nuru, and his best friend, Meredith. And we are going to go into a party scene um, in this excerpt. Meredith stands in the corner with a beer in her hand, but she's not smiling. Her nails are painted purple and gold like her teammates, but she didn't run today. She didn't even show up. She hasn't returned my calls and she won't look at me. I can't stop staring at her. She holds her beer like a professional, like a woman in a commercial with long, beautifully delicate but strong hands. Her top has spaghetti straps and plunges down the back so she can't wear a bra. With eyeliner, mascara and lip gloss highlighting her features, she looks a little older, a little more sophisticated and more noticeable. Rowan has noticed her. He keeps watching her with his tiny eyes. He holds a cup full of punch, then he holds two cups full of punch, then he holds a cup of punch and a beer. He wears a Princeton hat because that's where he will go next year, but it is old and tattered because he has always worn a Princeton hat because he has always known he is going there. That is why he never has any fucks to give, because his family can afford not to give them. He holds two cups of punch again and stands at the edge of a granite kitchen countertop scattered with plastic cups beer cans and plastic bags full of melting ice, tapping his fingers against their red ridges so some of the liquid spills onto his small hands. He watches Meredith toss her long brown hair over her shoulder so that we can see the single diamond stud suspended just beneath her collarbones on a thin gold chain. She rolls it between her fingers and it makes her look delicate and pretty. Rowan thinks she does it to look pretty because he thinks all women do all things to look either pretty or fuckable. He has always thought Meredith pretty. Now he thinks her fuckable. I know she touches her necklace when she's agitated or nervous because it reminds her of her grandmother and her grandmother made her feel safe. Rowan moves towards her with two beers. I choose to go outside. That was an excerpt from Speak No Evil by Uzodinwa Uewa. Bit of a cliffhanger there. <laughs> yeah, it is. I really liked that. The... um. Isn't it so interesting when writers uh, get it right, like the experiences of women or... I mean, I can only speak about the experiences of women, of women because I am a woman. But, um, yeah, the whole idea of, like, the kind of male viewing her as, like, a certain way, it's yeah. just so... When they get it right, they get it right, you know? I mm. also really liked that piece because standing alone, it sort of sounds like he might a romantic interest watching this unfold but really he's just her friend sort of concerned for her yeah but I sort of liked um how as a standalone you could probably can't really tell that from just that segment it's mm. a good one now I'm postponing this now. I'm stalling <laughs> this next one um I was rummaging through uh, a box of old uh schoolwork today mm -hmm. um, and I found some angsty poetry that I wrote when I was 16 and I couldn't I couldn't even write the the title on the run sheet because this is just too cringy but here we go 
This poem from 16-year-old Ellie. It's called... (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Ellie, you can do it. Social scenes and broken dreams. I was watching a lot of Gossip Girl at the time. (laughs) There's no judgment here. Thank you. Here we go. Contained in their tiny fishbowl, they float. Their words, bubbles, wasted air. It's not a sin to want in. You're just buying time. You know you're better on the brink than uncool. Thick war paint is well applied. Just cover up your eyes. For your soul, they'll smoke without a care. Still, you bat for lashes. It's the price you pay for status. It would be social suicide to open up your mind. Really, it's the good times that kill you slowly. When it's time to liven up, your insides get carved up. At least your affairs are are all sorted though. That easy-bake reputation in check before your time comes. I know you can't keep a secret, but because I'm giving them away, I'll tell you that crown is no cure for a headache. Those social scenes lead to broken dreams, swallowing you whole, a scandal on your blood-red lips. Armed with barbed wire words, your arsenal, for every night you put up a fierce battle. You've got your tissue paper friends to keep you laughing, snigger at all those beneath you. It's how you feel good. Karma, you'll believe in anything. But that can't be true. Sometimes a black state hits but it never, ever hits you. I'm happy you lie for the loyal subjects below. They can't see any depth in their Cheshire Iceberg Queen. Two hands tied up for your lies. No wonder you're grinning. Your soul, you you sold your soul. You've got the gold to show. It's a winning feeling. Faithless, your head's a mess, but I guess it's the look you do best. Before your rule, you still believed in God. Pretty red rose, you're living dead. You waltz the earth, holding hands, holding grudges. Do you even remember your own name? You grew up too fast, but you're still young enough to know everything. Wood sharp, burn easy, just like you knew you would. Looking down from your flaming throne... Your wildlife presence, wildfire presence. The mean gleam in your eyes like jewels in your melting crown. Yeah, you're still green, beauty queen, but you'll burn to the ground in good time. So, I really liked that, Ellie. Yeah. Guys, (laughs) give yourself some credit. Teenage Ellie had a lot of feelings, and she just had to, you know, get them out sometimes. Um, I, I think I, that was a mature way to get them out, though. I thought yeah. that was nice. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah. I got an A. Yeah. Shout out to um, oh, Miss Eaton, Year 10 English teacher. Yes. Should we get her on the show? Yeah, we'll get her on the show <laughs> next week. Um, we're only with you for a few more minutes. Um to finish up, uh, we will be listening in a moment to a recording of one of our favourite poems, uh, a poem by the great Jenny Joseph called Warning. Um, but before we wrap it up, Lucy, do you have a submission for us there? Sure do. <laughs> um, while Lucy's bringing that up, if you are listening in and would like to hear your work broadcast um you can always email us at right here radio at gmail.com that's w-r-i-t-e radio at here radio at gmail.com um we'd love to read your workout we'd love to see what you've got and uh you know while you're there give us a like on uh, facebook or instagram we'd like to see you there too Alrighty, this one is called leopard skin by douglas stewart um and this was published in a book called Ends and Beginnings, edited by Frank Ritchie. Seven pairs of leopard skin underpants, flying on the rotary clothesline. Oh look, look, virgins. How with the shirts and pyjamas they whirl and dance. And think no more, trembling in your own emergence. Like butterflies into the light, that tall, soft boy, 
who nightly over his radio crooned and capered, alone in his room in weird adolescent joy. Is mother's boy softly? Has he not slain a leopard? But more than that, does he not wear its skin, secretly, daily, superbly? Oh, girls adore him, for dreaming on velvet feet to slay and to sin. He prowls the suburb, the wild things flee before him. He meows at the leopardess, leopardesses. They stop. He is a leopard. He bought himself in a shop. <laughs> that was Leopard Skin by Douglas Stewart. Short and sweet and quite funny. I like that one. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> Thank you uh, for listening. Thank you for tuning in uh, to Right Here, Right Now. And just remember one more time, if you have any submissions for us to broadcast or if you'd even like to read them aloud yourself, as Harrison did earlier in this episode, please reach out to us at righthereradio at gmail.com. That's don't right with a W. Don't forget to like our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram as well. Um, that's Right Here Radio on Instagram and Facebook. Um, now, before we go, we'd just like to mention that Next week, we've got another Ripper show, so be sure to tune in next Monday at 8.30pm. We'll have another interview. We'll have the second part of Harrison's story. Um, so please tune in next week and send us your work. Thank you for listening, and most importantly, thank you to all of our submitters. Um, without you, this show wouldn't be possible. Now, to finish, uh, we are going to listen to Jenny Joseph reading her poem, Warning. Enjoy this one. See you next week, guys. Warning. When I am an old woman, I should wear purple, with a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. And I should spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say, we've no money for butter. I should sit down on the pavement when I'm tired and gobble up samples in shops and press alarm bells and run my stick along the public railings and make up for the sobriety of my youth. I should go out in my slippers in the rain and pick the flowers in other people's gardens and learn to spit. You can wear terrible shirts and grow more fat and eat three pounds of sausages as to go or only bread and pickle for a week and hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. But now we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay our rent and not swear in the street and set a good example for the children. We must have friends to dinner and read the papers. But maybe I ought to practice a little now so people who know me are not too shocked and surprised when suddenly I am a and start to wear purple. Like us at facebook.com/sinmedia. Follow us on Twitter at sinmedia. And come visit us at syn.org.au.